Hey everyone, I'm Chris Hall and you're listening to the Downtime Podcast, where we delve deep into the gravity-based side of mountain biking. This week's episode of the show is supported by Hunt Bike Wheels and Crank Brothers. Hunt Bike Wheels are part of the Rider Firm family and strive to go above and beyond when serving riders by applying forward-thinking ideas and the latest technologies to every wheel set, backing it all up with both in-house and elite-level athlete testing with riders such as Matt Stuttar, Jamie Edmondson and Becky Skelton. Their aim is simply to create the best wheels for each type of riding. Hunt Bike Wheels are available through your local bike shop or direct and you can always rely on being able to speak to a person to access the parts, knowledge or servicing that you need in order to perform at the highest level day in, day out. Head to huntbikewheels.com to check out what they have to offer. As a downtime listener, Hunt are kindly offering a free Hunt accessory pack worth over £40 with each order until the 15th of November. All you need to do is to use the code DOWNTIME, all in lowercase, over at huntbikewheels.com. As you probably know now, I've uh, been on flat pedals for a long time and recently I've been having a go at being clipped in. And for this experiment, I've chosen to use the Crank Brothers Mallet DH pedals. They're super adjustable, have an easy release cleat option and let's face it, they're race proven and the choice of a lot of the top pros. So what have I learned from spending some time on the Mallet DHs? Well, it's safe to say that when I'm up and running, I definitely feel more at one with the bike. And I don't have to think or worry about that foot to pedal interface. It just works and it allows me to focus 100% on the trail in those fast, rough sections where your feet can lose contact with the pedals or start to drift across the pedal platform. It also means your foot is always in the right place on the pedal, which I think is a big bonus. However, riding clipped in off-road certainly takes some getting used to. And as I've not yet spent enough time on them, I'm not able to clip out quickly and without consciously thinking about it. This means that I start to ride tight. And when I'm in a section that's slippery or technical and in my head, it means I kind of might need to dab. I have no doubt that this will improve over time. And not only will I be able to stay loose on the bike in these sections, but I'll also be making way less unnecessary dabs. After a lot of rain here recently, it's got pretty slippery and I've switched back over to flat pedals as that's where I'm still the most comfortable. And it was interesting to find that I'd noticed some of the flat pedal downsides more than I did before, like getting your foot positioned correctly on the pedal and your foot moving as you fly down the trail. Things that I just got used to, I guess, with flats. So the experiment has convinced me that there are some big benefits to be had from being clipped in. It's also shown me that it's not something you can learn overnight. Through this winter, I'm probably going to spend some time on clips and some time on flats, depending on the conditions and what I'm riding. I'm excited to see how things progress as the process of clipping in and out becomes more and more natural. Hopefully by the spring, I'll be fully up to speed on them and can really get all the benefits of being clipped in. If you're interested in getting clipped in yourself, then Crank Brothers are going to be giving three lucky listeners a pair of clipping pedals of their choice, along with their new M20 multi-tool to install them with. All you need to do to enter is to head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash crankbrothers and fill in your details there. You've got until the end of October to get that done. You can also check out their entire range of products over at crankbrothers.com. Don't forget to make sure you subscribe to the podcast. It's free and it means you'll get every episode as soon as it drops. It's super easy to do with buttons for all the major platforms over at downtimepodcast.com forward slash subscribe. While you're on that page, you can also join my newsletter for a weekly dose of interesting bike related stuff, competitions, products I've been enjoying and more. If you want to help support the show, then there's a few things you can do. You can head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop and grab yourself a treat. We've got t-shirts, sweatshirts and hoodies, all totally organic, printed to order and shipped with no single-use plastic. Or you can give the podcast a quick review over on iTunes. Really easy to do, super quick, they're amazing to read and it does help others find the show. 
All right, this episode is also supported by Faction Bike Studio, and this week I'm joined by their founder and head honcho, Eric Auger. Eric is an engineer who you probably haven't heard of, but he's been working in mountain biking from the beginning and now runs Faction Bike Studio, which is a consultancy that works for many bike brands across the world, helping them produce awesome bikes for us all to ride. If you want to find out more about what Faction do, then as well as hearing about it in this episode, you can check out their website, which is factionbikestudio.com. For this episode, we sat down to find out a bit about Eric's background and then pick his brains on some of the biggest trends in mountain biking right now. So we chat about geometry, mullet bikes, high pivot bikes, adjustability, e-bikes, as well as what he believes the future holds for the sport. Eric has lived and breathed mountain biking for his entire career and it was great to chat with someone who is as into the details as Eric. So without further ado, here's Eric Auger. Eric Auger, welcome to the Downtime Podcast. How's things with you? Things are going well. Thank you for having me. Ah, it's a pleasure. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to get stuck into some technical chat with you. But before we do that, um, let's wind the clock right back and, and tell us a little bit about how bikes initially came into your life. Um, bikes came in at pretty early age. I, w- I was always fascinated with them. And uh, so I was doing road racing. But I felt that I was not really into it, like my friends were into it, but not me. And then I discovered mountain bikes in 1985. And I kind of fell in love directly with them. And I've started uh, racing and I raced ever since. Wow, 1985. What kind of bikes were you you on back then? Uh, I had like um, a company that is not well known. It was... uh, for budgetary cause, it's a company uh, that was called Mieli at that time. They were manufactured in Toronto. Okay. But I soon after uh, got a Stump Jumper from yeah. Specialized uh, when they were produced in Japan. They were Art Tales. So it was uh, another era. Excellent. And am I right in thinking it was your teacher that got you into cycling in the first place? Yeah, you're right. Um, um, one of my former teacher at high school was coming from France, and he has raced like um, like the Tour de France. And oh, wow. he was in road racing as well, but he was really into mountain bike early on, and he was commuting all year long on his mountain bike, and that what like introduced it to me, and nice. and I thought it was really fascinating. Cool. Um, how competitive were you in the racing side of things? Because back then, I guess it was cross country and hill climbs and stuff like that. Yeah, it's uh, we were doing pretty much everything. Um, so it was mainly cross country, of course. But the uh, association, the racing association, also uh, forced us to uh, do some downhill and trials with the same bike. So uh, to get you know our overall skills. And after yeah. that, I think I've concentrated concentrated a little bit more on XC racing uh-huh. and really the highlight of my racing career was pretty late because I've discovered that I had a lot of uh, like uh, talents natural talent toward endurance okay. so I did a lot of 24 hour races and that led me to uh, competing twice at the world solo championship uh-huh. and I finished uh, second in my age group in 2009 Wow, good work! Thanks. That's a that's a that's an incredible achievement, that, and those those events are are really grueling, right? Uh, yeah, 
yeah, it's it's hard. And at first, the first one you're doing, you just want to make it to the finish line. And uh, after that, you know, you're starting to get the hang of it. Your body is adjusting. So I did probably over uh, between 15 and 20 events in, in, yeah. in my life. And at the end, it was really competitive. At the World Championship, I probably set foot on the ground during the race for 15 minutes. So I was eating uh, on my bike and drinking two bikes. So I was doing a quick, quick rotation. It was really like intense and over the 20, 24 hour, uh, really kept it going uh, all the way and finished like a few minutes behind the, the first, the first guy. Wow, fair play. Not for me, but uh, yeah, it's uh, super impressive stuff. So t- tell us a little bit about how your career in the bike industry got going. Yeah, I've, um, I was always quite interested about the mechanic side of things. So the first bike my parents got me, I completely uh, tore it apart during the winter to understand how it was made. So I meant like pretty much everything, like taking the shifters apart, taking the 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 cassette body apart and everything and um that kind of uh helped me get a job in a local bike shop where i've worked about six years and also like by repairing customer products i realized that mountain bikes were not fully uh mature mature yet like they they had a lot of failures I remember having like a full suspension bike in 1993 and I was able, I needed to like uh, service my shock every week, basically. So it was pretty rudimentary at that time. And, and I said like, this is not normal. It needs to get better. And this, like I started looking, okay, where can I learn stuff to design bicycle? And the closest thing I found was uh, mechanical engineering. Mm-hmm. And so that's what you studied at university, right? Yeah. So when I graduated in 94, uh, at the at my last semester, I was hired by Cycles Da Vinci right away. Yeah. So my, my last semester was quite hard because the only thing I could think of was Da Vinci. And I <laughs> couldn't wait getting there. How did that opportunity come about then? Did you apply to them or what? No, what it's it's kind of a, you know, these strange coincidence. So I visited my friends at the bike shop during the winter in February where everything was really quiet. And as soon as I, and I was unannounced, got in the shop and my boss at the time says, like, this is the guy I'm talking about. And the guy standing next to him was Felix Gauthier, the owner of Cycles of Inchi. And he came to me and said, like, uh, I heard that you really enjoy bike and that you're designing bikes and parts in your free time. Would you want a job? And I said, yeah, for sure. We shook hand and the deal was done. No interview at all. And I started in May 1994 and happened just like that. Amazing. You were there for a good long time, yeah? I was there for a total of 13 years, uh, which in retrospect seems a bit longer because I did so much stuff over there. It was like a super good experience uh, from the fact that we were manufacturing our own bikes. So understanding 
the aluminium process, uh, everything that goes into it from welding, from heat treatment. And I was forced to, to do design, good design for manufacturing because I had the guys in the shop like always complaining about how I was designing stuff. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And you guys were quite uh, quite advanced as well, right? Some of the some of the earliest aluminium mountain bikes were from Da Vinci. Yeah, it's right. The company started in 87, so I would say that back in the days there was not a lot of companies doing aluminium bikes. And uh, I came in to really help with the design and the company started growing from there. Amazing, amazing. So what drove you to to move on then from Da Vinci and to set up what is now Faction Bike Studio? Tell us a little bit about, about that move because that's, that's a big change. Yeah, it's really a big change. And uh, I felt that at Da Vinci I did a lot. The company grew, but I was always kind of contained in our bicycle lineup. And there was a limit to the number of bikes I was able to design a year. And of course, I was involved in other aspects of the company, like uh, like a team sponsorship, uh, like uh, inventory uh, production. And what I really wanted to do was like full on R and D on bikes. And it took me a while to find out what I wanted to do. At first, it was always revolving about creating a new bike brand. And it's um, really when I had a discussion with my friend Dave Weagle that kind of the idea popped in my head. And at that time, he was doing a lot of kinematics for uh, other clients, like uh, either using DW-Link, Split Pivot, uh, Delta Link, or Orion. Mm -hmm. And um, basically what Dave was doing was really doing geometry and kinematic. But he felt that his design with his client were kind of falling short from the design standpoint. So that's how I said, like, yeah, I could do that. You know, I could be the one, you know, helping your clients and developing their bike. Yeah. And so you, you, you set it up, like how, how does that even happen? How do you go about setting up? Uh, well, maybe explain to people briefly, I guess, what faction bike studio is and, and how it serves the bike industry to give people a bit of a flavor for it. Yeah, so Faction Bike Studio is a design and engineering service company. So we work for bike brands. Uh, so we help them in their process. And, you know, the best way I can put it is we help them materialize their idea into production. And these days, uh, we need to do that really efficiently because time to market is everything. So sometimes it's being a full-on R&D department that is working remotely. So we need to understand how this company is working and we need to understand the behind the scene and we can really tailor a design towards their company philosophy. And some other times we're working with companies that have an internal R&D team but they are lacking like resources uh, to to be able to achieve all their objectives in terms of new bike platform to be introduced the next year. Okay. So you, you can kind of help fill, fill gaps, I guess, in brands where either they haven't got the, the knowledge or they, they haven't got 
enough people to to deliver everything they want to do is that fair yeah it's fair so there's um like in the bike industry you cannot learn bicycle design anywhere there's no school for it so you're basically uh, learning it while you you work at bike company and climbing up the ladder from there uh so even if you have a lot of job like you cannot just post uh, a job offer and fill it right away you need to have training and it takes at least a year to a, a year and a half so faction can come in and fill in that transition period and help companies achieve their goal yeah so how how big is faction bike studio now how many people have you got working there uh we're currently 10 people the biggest uh-huh. we got was 15 right um and i feel that these days like uh we have uh, people that have been with us for a long time so there's a lot of in-depth maturity a lot of experience so we're doing as much work than when we were 15 mm-hmm and you know my intention is not to grow the company really big uh, i think 15 is probably the max that we were we will get on a get and there's so much uh, like projects that you can do in the bike industry there's not a lot of design studios in the world and we are all pretty busy but my I would say that uh, my biggest competitors are not the other studios. Uh, they are my clients because at some point they will want to hire people internally in their department. And that's that's okay with us. We're there to help them when they need us. So we don't want to be um, you know, something that uh, force them to use us all the time. Yeah. And I'm guessing, I mean, you can't talk about specific clients because obviously that sort of stuff is confidential, but can you give us a feel for some of the sorts of things that you've worked on recently? Uh, Yeah, it's quite diversified. So uh, just to give you an overview, uh, in these 10 years, we have worked for over uh, 60 bicycle brands. Wow. And uh, so we work in the shadows and the main reason why it's not public is to give them like the uh, the to empower their teams and to give them the benefit of what they are doing. So we're not there to take credit for what our clients want to do. So uh, we mm-hmm. work in the shadows, and uh, over the these uh, this ten year period, we have done probably uh, over two hundred sixty projects. Wow. And can you give us some sort of general examples of the kind of things that you've you've worked on, obviously, without talking about specific products or brands? Yeah. Our specialty is definitely bicycle frame. And it comes, you know, I, I would say by waves. Uh, in the first few years, we were designing a lot of full suspension bike, uh, especially carbon. Afterwards, when hydroforming and forge part, like, Uh, came to aluminium and the goal was to make the aluminium bike looks like his bigger brother the carbon bike Mm -hmm. Uh, it became like much complex afterwards it it tends to shift towards uh, e-bikes where it was all about integrating all the components inside the frame then uh, gravel bikes as we needed to 
put big tires on like a road geometry and deal with clearances, things like that. Um, so it it comes by wave, but I would say that we're doing all kinds of bicycle, mountain bike, uh, full suspension carbon and alloy is still a big part of what we're doing. Mm-hmm. But we also uh, are working on commuter products. Uh, we're working on bike sharing bikes and uh, it's quite diversified. And we have done some components as well. Uh, so we're talking dropper post, uh, suspension fork, and a lot different kind of accessories. Yeah, and you do a lot of testing as well for brands, is that right? Yeah, it's right. Uh, so it's split up in two, two different sections. So we have what we call the virtual testing, which is using uh, finite element analysis uh, to test a design that is not yet produced so we're using our CAD model and over the years we have perfected this method to have a high level of correlation with real life so this um, requires us to really understand the behavior of the welding bead for an aluminium bike and have some real life data so we can predict the fatigue life of the structure so What's really cool about this method is that you're not discovering the problem sequentially. You're discovering all the potential failure points on a bike, but that would occur at different number of cycles. As with only using the traditional lab technique, you're discovering one problem at a time. So you patch it then you find the other problem and you're basically like chasing your tail and finding out where the the root problem is coming from. Yeah, so you can do this all in a computer simulation without actually having to make the physical product, right? So by the time that you make something, you're fairly confident that it will pass all the relevant tests. Yeah, that's it. So the two main benefits is... Uh, we have much better design, homogeneous design. So potentially at the end of the life of the product, we want to see uh, the bike fail at different area. So we always joke at, about saying the best Formula One is the one that breaks at the finish line. It, <laughs> it means that it's quite optimized. And we want to do the same thing for bicycle. Uh, definitely not just doing a race, but let's see if we have... a uh, a life expect- expectation of 10 years or five years we want to have the product that is optimized for that given period yeah so it's not over engineered and lasts 50 years so you've, you've had something that's yeah engineered perfectly for what it was designed for right yeah and i've seen a lot of example where people thought that they were over engineering the product in order to like make it last forever but there's always a weak point it's like a chain there's always a weak point and a structure as soon as you have like a, like a really high rigidity area next to a more flexible area you're creating a stress riser at the boundary between the two so yeah. it's it's all about homogeneity uh-huh. and you as well as doing this virtual testing um 
using finite element analysis and all the all the computer aided design models you're doing physical testing as well yeah yeah that's exact so uh one aspect of our testing approach is it's quite different from what companies are normally using uh so we are using data acquisition upfront to be able to identify new load cases. So it's basically measuring loads, uh, load orientation, and also the number of cycles at which they will happen over the course of a, a given sample time. And then we multiply by the number of years we want to have the product lasting for. So this will lead to new testing protocol that are not standardized. Okay. So if I refer to ISO testing, it's a safety regulation. So it doesn't mean that it, it, it's aimed at creating like good products or performing product, but more as safety concern for people that are using them. Yeah. But my job is to make a product that will perform in the way it, it's meant to be. And that will also be safe for the end user. So there's the performance criteria that come in come into play, and that we're mm-hmm. taking in consideration. So yeah. every every year we're kind of learning the root cause of what made a bike crack in a certain situation where it was not supposed to, and we come up with new testing protocol, and we implement both uh, this uh, testing protocol in the virtual world, but also in the physical world with our testing machines. Mm -hmm. And is that just a bike level or are you looking at kind of component-specific testing as well? Uh, We do mainly everything that is structural. So there's a lot of bikes for sure, bicycle frames, Uh, but we do also components. And uh, after that, it's just, um, you know, requests coming from our client. So uh, we will, you know, a few times a year, put together a new, like, kind of testing for our client based on what he needs to test. So that goes from, you know, braking, uh, brake system. Uh, so we've developed a braking machine that is able to um, simulate a 220-pound rider descending at 70 kilometers per hour and stopping, like, as quickly as possible. Uh-huh. Um, so breaking and it could be uh, you know a crank a chain ring a cassette so it's yeah. quite diversified so we never know what we have in front of us but we have our methodology and we can apply it to other product as well good stuff so yeah you're you're clearly one of the the most experienced engineers in the industry at the moment and you've got uh, an interesting and unique position i guess in that you have an insight into to so many companies so it'd be good to pick your brain on some of the the kind of big things that are going on at the moment and i and i think one of those that's clearly been progressing a huge amount over the last few years is bike geometry and, and bikes have got generally a lot longer lower and slacker than they were yeah what are your thoughts on that kind of trajectory that the the bike industry seems to have been on for the last what maybe four years now you know i'm glad that this change happened because it was something that we've always been working on 
And the biggest um, problem with the companies making such drastic move in terms of geometry is to like not take any uh, commercial risk by going too far. So it's always important to test these, uh, you know, concept early on. So that's why we're seeing, uh, you know, really minimal evolution, like reach growing by 15 millimeters, like bottom bracket dropping by five, head to bangle, like slackening by one degree. Uh, and this is just a mean for the bike industry to get to the optimal point in, in a way that Mar that they can gain market acceptance and okay. also what's really confusing for the end user is that the metrics that we are using to size the bike are the one that are evolving right now so you can no longer shop a bike by its reach length because this is still evolving so i've never been like a big fan of dimensions that are taken on on the at the frame level okay. so for me that was not relevant so my positioning strategy was always about um, positioning bottom bracket saddle and handlebar and then positioning the wheels in relationship to the to this triangle so i'm calling it my ergonomical triangle and then once I have it positioned for a specific category, I position the wheel in relationship to to this. And, right. and this um, ergonomic position, the best metric that I found so far is back angle. So depending whether you're racing road bikes or mountain bikes, the only real difference is your back angle. So our... our how low are you on, on your bike? So this is literally the angle of your spine to the ground, yeah? Yeah, you're right. So okay. one metric does, that hasn't changed a lot, even though we are making all these changes to our geometry and people are confused, is what I call the cockpit length. So it's a distance between the saddle and the handlebar. Mm -hmm. So this metric hasn't changed that much uh, from bikes that are 10 5 and present bikes so the only real difference is that we have moved the wheels you know further front uh from the rider so that explains you know why we have such long reach uh, these days but yeah. you know modern bike actually feel uh, even a little bit more cramped when you're climbing on that mm -hmm. and um you know, I would say that the seat tube angle really uh, is a matter of the uh, evolution that we saw uh, of having dropper posts on our bike. So now we have a bike that has two positions, basically. One position for climbing and one position for descending. So as you're climbing, uh, you want to have like your weight as forward as possible. And uh, that explains why the seat tube got so steep and why the reach got so long. And it's the dropper post that's been a been the enabler, I suppose, right? Because yep. in the past, if you couldn't, yeah, if the seat was further forwards, you just wouldn't have been able to get over the back of the bike and able yep. to descend it. But yeah, having that that seat post where the saddle can just drop out of the way, that was the the enabler for bikes to get longer, right? 
Yep, that's the real enabler. You're right. Yeah, and do you, do you think uh, you know? You mentioned that it's been a slow journey because brands are are a little bit um, under pressure, I guess, because people don't like big change overnight. Do you think we're all the way there yet? Do you think we're at an optimum in in bike geometry, or do you think we'll see more further change? I think we've made uh, most of the journey, but there will still be uh, small tweaks here and there. So um, especially when you don't understand the whole system. So I never look at one key metric of a geometry by itself. I always look at the overall uh, system. So when a company is tempted to do average, of what the head tube angle are and what reach are, the numbers won't speak to one another and he, they can create the odd looking bike and functioning bike. Uh, when so you it, say when you say average, what do you mean by that? Um, like someone that would be tempted of saying, okay, I will look at my 10 closest competitor and measure all their reach and I will do an average of all these reach. And I'm sure that if I'm doing an average uh, calculation, I will get the the best reach possible and doing the same with all dimension. But you can really end up with a, a strange-looking bicycle and that would not function well at all. So mm-hmm. my approach is always doing it from the graphical standpoint. So when I'm doing reverse engineering of a geometry for a bike company, I never relate on the uh, the chart that they are publishing, uh-huh. but I'm I'm using one of our templates to draw the geometry and overlay it on top of one another. And you would be surprised when I'm starting looking at the wheels, handlebar position, saddle position, and bottom bracket. Two bikes with completely different number number of geometries are really stacking up one against the other because it's the sum of all dimension that makes a bike yes true so it makes it very very hard for people to buy off geometry charts right yeah it's really hard even myself uh, i've been doing this all my all my life i have a pretty good sense when i'm looking at the table of what the bike is like but i'm always surprised when i put it into like uh, a bike geometry and doing a graphical overlay of two bikes on top of one another yeah and, and do, you, do you think there are actually bike brands that are designing bike geometry based off the average of their competitors? Is that is that happening? Yeah, it's happening. You would be surprised. <laughs> really? Yeah. But, I mean, people say there's, you know, there's no such thing as a bad bike these days. Is that is that a fair statement or do you, do you feel otherwise? Yeah, I think it's a fair statement. Uh, the industry has come a long way. Uh, there were few key principles that were not well understood, If I even if I re- uh, go back only 10 years. But now, concerning the understanding of what like a good bike geometry is and what a good suspension kinematic is, and I think the industry has progressed tremendously. Yeah. Okay, well, that's good. yeah, it's good to hear that uh, people aren't going to end up with something dodgy. But yeah, designing a bike based on averages just feels a bit lacking in uh, in science and engineering to me. Yep. So some of the big brands, obviously, they are doing it to the level 
at which we're doing it at Faction. But if you think about a smaller company, uh, they lack you know experience or they, they don't want to be too much in front of the sometimes the current trend. And they will kind of, it will take time for them to iterate and get it right. Yeah. Yeah, and it's an expensive process, I guess. Every time you want to make a prototype and go and test it, it's not that's not straightforward. Yeah, and that's the reason why we exist. You know, at first when I started Faction Bike Studio, my main idea was to help smaller brands to get their level of design on par with bigger brands. Uh-huh. Were you surprised when bigger brands started to get in touch? Yes, and after like reflecting on that, I realized that it made total sense because we are quite organized. We work the same way they do. So for them, it's quite easy to give us a project because there is no learning curve. We speak the same language. We have the same design process. So they feel at ease working with us from the beginning. Okay. And and they have like the bigger the brand is, the bigger the R and D department is, and the bigger the amount of projects that they are giving away to a third party, a consultant is is bigger, yeah, as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. It's one thing that I wanted to talk a little bit about because it's something I've been trying to get my head around recently, and there's been quite a lot of noise about it, I guess, on forums and websites and stuff, and that that's the 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 growth of a chain stay in relation to the frame size. So there seems to be more and more brands now that are making size specific chain stays. And I guess the, the thought being that as the front center length increases, as the frame gets bigger, so should the rear center. Can you give us your thoughts on the the two different options there? And, and I'm, I'm kind of interested in why brands might not, um, make a size specific change there obviously there's the cost side of things but is there is it less significant in the way a bike rides to the to the front center for example personally i think it makes total sense because as the cyclist gets taller on a bicycle uh, for a given angle we're not yet at 90 90 degree uh, seat tube angle so the weight bias uh, will be more on the rear wheel as the rider gets taller. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense to balance and to have the same weight distribution between a small frame, a medium, and a large frame. Okay. Uh, so to me, it makes total sense. Sometimes it comes down to being able to make that change happen. Sometimes it's a good idea on paper, but there's a economy scale and some brands cannot do it because of the tooling involvement with carbon fiber it has become a bit simpler to do because for your front triangle you already have a dedicated mold for that given size Mm -hmm. so that that like what people don't realize is that the trick that is used to make your chain stay longer is actually not by increasing the chainstay length itself or the swing arm length, I would say. So they are increasing it by moving the the main pivot on the front triangle by okay. that by sliding it in relationship to the origin of the bottom bracket. So uh-huh. 
This way, they can have a dedicated part for their swing arm that is always the same on all the sizes. So they just like rearrange your rear swing arm to make yeah. efficient, like effectively, a new uh, chainstay length. Uh, okay, because they with carbon, it forces you to make a a mold for each different frame size, which you wouldn't have to do in. Yes. In, uh, in metal obviously so you've got that option to move the pivot does that not change the kinematic though yeah but we can you can uh, tweak it you can use it to tweak it your to tweak your kinematic and this concept i haven't seen it like uh, a lot but the kinematic and the anti-squat value and anti-rise value are all closely related with the center of mass of the rider. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you're um, changing rider's height, the kinematic already doesn't feel the same. So okay. there's a way also to make a uh, size-specific kinematic in tweaking the, the kinematic point to, yeah. to have the same behavior on all the bikes. And, Got you. and for me, another thing that would make a lot of sense but again it's not like uh, a wide practice in the mountain bike industry is varying the head tube angle to be more specific with size and the thinking behind that is as the bike grows the wheelbase grow and you want to have the same handling characteristic between all your sizes so you could effectively steepen up the head tube slightly on larger size and slacking them up on smaller size. Mm, okay, I'm struggling to get my head around how that impacts uh, the riding dynamic. Imagine uh, like, a, like a school bus with like a, a long wheelbase. It will, if even if it has the same steering geometry as a, as a car, it will struggle to make the the corner in, yeah. the, in a really tight radius. So I, I feel that it's a bit the same. So trail, which characterize stability, but also cornering stabi- uh, characteristic is closely related to the wheelbase. So mm-hmm. as the wheelbase gets longer, uh, effectively you should modify the trail in a proportion uh, to its wheelbase. And it's something that, road bikes have been doing for years so they tweak uh the frame geometry uh and or the handling characteristic base on the size of the bike there'd be any negative of increasing the steepness of the head angle on the larger sizes or would it just bring the ride feel in line with smaller sizes i i don't think so it like I'm, and I'm not talking like big, big changes, but maybe like a quarter of a degree. Uh-huh. So it could just help, like longer bike, uh, make tighter radius. Yeah. But, uh, and that's not something that is widely used. And you no, know, this is the main reason why we are using uh, prototyping at early stage of the development to test out these thinking. Like, of course. You wouldn't want to go with like such a radical idea and go directly on the market with it without proving it at, at first. 
Yeah, and, and sometimes what you find during testing session is counterintuitive, you know. Yeah, yeah. Bikes are a very, very complex thing, more so than than cars in a lot of ways. When it certainly dynamically. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. So let's let's get your thoughts on uh, mixed wheel size bikes then, because there's a sort of semi trend towards more mullet bikes being available, but they're definitely not everyone's in on that one there's some brands that are, that are running them and there's some demand for sure because of people like martin mays doing well on one in uh in enduro and then you know loic and finn and now the, now some of the santa cruz guys doing it in downhill are there any from your point of view are there any real technical advantages of having a smaller rear wheel that should make the bike faster other than the ability to for the rider to move around over the back of the bike more easily yeah you're um like faster times i think it will depend on on the type of riding terrain uh, okay. so sometimes i think like the 27.5 wheel could be faster and sometimes the 29 inch wheels could be faster of course with like uh, big travel bikes we're always struggling to get the wheel uh, in its full compression, clear the seat tube, the saddle, and uh, the, the the rider's rear end, and it's mm-hmm. always kind of a, a struggle. And and I I think you know a lot of people riding twenty nine inch wheel has always experienced a moment where they 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 buzz the the tire, yeah, and you you kind of have like a feeling for where your rear wheel is at any given time so you need to practice to understand where your rear wheel will be uh when you have your dropper post uh low, lower down at the minimum mm-hmm. um at first of course there was limitation on how you could package a frame in a smaller size to get the proper standover height and uh, all the cornering, like dynamic and and shoe clearance with the front wheel, and we with refinement we've been able to offer twenty nine inch wheel also to smaller riders because there was demand for it. Like smaller riders don't want to be left out, so they were also asking for twenty nine inch wheels. Although maybe for them it would have made more sense to go twenty seven point five. And a concept that we've pushed uh, real far, uh, like forward to our clients, even back in 2012, was to do uh, uh, wheel size specific to the size of the bike. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not something that our customers were catching on to. They didn't want to do it. Like I think the stakes were a bit too high. These last few years, we've seen that happening, uh, like seeing like small bikes with 27.5 e- uh, wheels only, yeah. and then like going to mixed size wheels, and then full 29 inch wheels. Yeah. And do, do you believe anything? I mean, there's various theories or people talking about the um, a mullet bike turning in better quicker faster than a than a full 29er is there any do you think there's any benefit to be had there maybe 
and I don't have like a scientific explanation for it. Okay. But for sure, when uh, trying mullet bikes that has the same geometry as a full-on 29-inch wheel, there's a like an observed feeling that the bike feels slacker, and uh, so. But it's it's really strange, um, and it's it's really hard to put a, a number or doing a calculation. So. I think there's some merit to that because we're changing the the dynamic of the bike for sure, mm-hmm. and um, the so it's it probably involves like uh, rotating inertia of the twenty seven point five inch wheel as well. So uh, although we think that we've made the same bike geometry between a mixed wheel size bike and a twenty nine inch bike. The riding characteristic can feel different for the rider. Yeah, yeah. There's other things coming into play somewhere. Yeah, yeah. Complicate. It's a complicated beast. All right. No, one more thing I want to talk about on kind of current trends is adjustability. It seems to be more and more bikes getting launched now with adjustable head tube uh, angles or adjustable reach or, you know, flip chips so you can change bottom bracket height and chain stay length, all this kind of stuff. Why do you think we're seeing that? And do you think it's a, a good thing? Um, I think there is some benefit to that, but also some downside. So the reason why we are seeing it, uh, at this moment is that we're still in this evolution of finding the right geometry. So people are that design bicycle are embedding these feature and they let like the end user tailor their ride to their need. Mm-hmm. The second factor is that we don't ride on the same type of terrain. So um, you know I can like be riding in a up and down trail as someone else living near a big mountain chain will climb for an hour and go down for 15 minutes. Yeah. So they don't, like they are always in the climbing and descending mode, as some others will kind of be in, in like a hilly terrain, going up and down really quickly. So that can affect that. So you're giving the ability to some people riding specific terrain to adjust their bike to their need. Instead of the, the bike brand starting to design a bike for a specific use, and um, and it's the hardest thing that we have to do when we're designing bicycle or product in general is to make compromises, and uh, compromises are really hard to achieve, and you need to spend a lot of time, you know, uh, balancing them out. So for a company adding a lot of like these adjustability it's i won't say the easy way out but it's for sure kind of a a solution that prevents them from making a mistake in their geometry and giving options to the end user but it comes to the cost of um yeah of maybe creating more problem like creaking sounds uh, because of the interface and also adding cost to the products you're buying. So, yeah, so I, I, I'm a big fan of trying to get it right and 
have the minimum adjustability on the bike. So I wouldn't want to have a bike that is fully adjustable. I'm okay with like a flip chip system that helps you to, uh, let's say, give you the choice between 27.5 and 29 inch wheels at the time Mm -hmm. or changing, uh, you know, uh, uh, the behavior or the bottom bracket height based on your riding condition someone that would ride really uh, rocky trails would want to have this bottom bracket slightly higher than someone who's riding on flow trails. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, let's, let's talk then a bit about what you see the future holding for certainly for the gravity side of mountain biking. What kind of stuff do you see coming? I guess you keep quite a close eye on the patent landscape. Is there anything out there that gives you much insight into to what sort of stuff we might see over the next five to ten years. Yeah, that's uh, that's good. Yeah, uh, patents gives us a good insight. So we're doing a constant patent search. So this week, this year was pretty interesting because we saw three uh, major brand uh, component brands that have filed in the gearbox patent, okay. uh, like Shimano and Raceface and Praxis recently. Yeah. So there's definitely something there. It doesn't mean that they will go forward with it by commercializing the product. But the fact that they are filing IP uh, means that they are looking at it. Um, right now, I don't feel that Gearbox have been an efficient solution to replace external drivetrain. But if we have big players starting to focus on it, uh, we can hope for an evolution there and see them on our bikes in i would say then like in five years from now yeah the other trend that i'm seeing right now is um i pivot uh, with idlers coming on lower travel bikes okay like the forbidden yeah so we've seen them on on dh bike they've been uh successful and they are now adding their uh Second life because they were around in the early 2000, I would say, and and then uh, they vanished for a while. And in the bike industry, I've noticed that trend like uh, things are coming back. There was a big carbon wave in the 1990s, it went away and came back in a better form. So, we need to be careful of saying uh, it's been done, been there, done that. It's not true. It, it's coming back, but it's coming back in a different form, and sometimes it's really subtle. And I pivot kinematic makes sense from uh, from a sense that you can tailor the anti squat and anti rise independently in leverage ratio as well. And uh, by positioning the idler in relationship to your kinematic, you can really affect how the bike uh, behaves. So there's a lot of design freedom with that design. Yeah, some downsides, I guess, with uh, added friction in the drivetrain. Yep, yep, that's uh, that's one for sure. So, uh, and as I was mentioning before, it's all about making the right compromises. So if one new feature gives you a lot of benefit and you have like uh, another feature of the bike that is kind of taking away from that benefit you need to compare the two and see if it's worth uh, doing it or not yeah what do you think's making 
high pivot now better than high pivot 20 years ago? Um, our general understanding about bike kinematics, I would say. Okay. Uh, also, uh, modern geometry. Yeah. And I think it's like the most important factor is the trails we're riding. Okay. So they are not the same, uh, they were in 2000. So maybe in 2000, uh, it was an overkill solution. And now things the the riders are riding are insane. And even the average rider, like uh, the average rider has, has got to a point where he could, like he's riding some pretty amazing stuff. And the bikes have been the enabler for that. Yeah, they're so capable, aren't they? You can uh, you can throw a, even a relatively short travel bike down some pretty crazy stuff these days, and come out the other side. Yeah, and uh, you know the more the trail get extreme, the guys like me are pushing the boundary to have bikes riding them, and like more sick, like in the more or safer. Sorry. Yeah. And. Uh, but then the trail builders will build more extreme trails. So it's kind of a dog chasing his tail. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What about uh, e-bike technology? Do you think we'll see more of that? Will there be a day where every every mountain bike is an e-bike? I don't think so. I think it it's for different crowds. Um, I'm uh, like personally, I see the need for it. And I'm not trying to um, change someone that has the ability to ride uh, a normal bike to get away from a normal bike. But I see the potential of, of having newcomer to the cycling sport, which is a sport that I enjoy. And the more people that are doing it, the better my sports get. But we need to be careful about teaching these newcomer how to behave on trails because that can be, you know, uh, the flip side to having someone that doesn't respect uh, trail protocols. And, and uh, yeah, so I'm, that makes me a bit worried as well. Yeah. And I think we will adapt. We always find solutions. So the trail networks will have uh, uphill trails for traditional bike and uphill trails for e-bikes. We're already seeing that happening. And if we can build in some interesting features for e-bikes, they won't be tempted to use the traditional switchback uphills. Mm -hmm. so, so we need to make their trail not boring as they are right now, but build in some features where they say, like, I'm going there and I have fun while climbing and also descending. Yeah, okay. Yeah, to create some separation on the trail network. Yeah. What about uh, kind of more integrated solutions? So a bike is generally uh, a load of components from different brands put together on a frame to make an overall package. Do you think there'll be more of a move towards some level of, of integration and, and brands controlling more of that overall picture to enable them to do things a bit differently? Because we're sort of limited to some extent by by all the different components that we've got to put together. Yeah, we're um, dancing like it's always a, a dance that we do between frame maker and component supplier. 
So a lot of innovation that we've seen over the last 10 years has been modifying the parts or the standard. And, you know, standard is an overused word because there is no real standard anymore, but more, uh, you know, new ways of solving technical problem for the frame maker. And sometimes it's true from the, the component supplier as well where they will come up with a new technology that frame companies needs to adapt to. So mm -hmm. I think overall, this is a good change, although it may be, con be considered frustrating for the end user because there is a quick evolution. And I'm a big fan of, uh, of planning well ahead and not rush products to the market because this is where you're starting to have like quick iteration of a year to a two year for a bike model. And this is what really frustrating for the end user who just bought a bike and he see the model that he bought being replaced two years after. Yeah, definitely. But I'm all towards the change uh, between components and standard. Okay. Yeah, fair play. And um, another thing that we've seen a bit more of recently, and I know you guys have been been super focused on 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 this side of things, and that's the rapid prototyping side of the industry and enabling people to get a version of a bike out very very quickly that's that's rideable. Tell us a bit about that because I know you've spent a lot of time on that. Yep. So we've always been using. Uh... Uh, prototyping in the design process to test out some of the wild concept that we have. Because if we leave them in the computer, uh, they won't they won't make it to the end because the risk is too high. So making a prototypes is a mean of reducing the risk. Um, so we call we often call them test mules. Test mules are usually unattractive. They are heavy. They are just there to prove a concept, uh, whether it's geometry, kinematic, or a new feature on the bike. So their life is quite short. Once it's uh, proved out, then you flush your, your test mule because it's not usually fun to ride. So we saw a need for a form of prototyping that could be used for longer-term testing. And... And long before we even see a first production frame coming out of the mold. So in order to be useful for the design and for the testing, uh, whether it's test writers or uh, teams, um, you know, the, the, the prototype needs to be lightweight, it needs to be reliable, and it needs to be close to what the final product will look like. So it's been on my head for a really long time, and recently we've innovated by creating like a manufacturing, manufacturing technique that can be done outside of a, of a factory. So we're doing it in our lab at Faction Bike Studio, and it doesn't need uh, tooling and we can produce it in a matter of weeks really quickly and so we're basically using a mix of uh, aluminium machine lugs so mm -hmm. half lugs that are interfaced together and they are locked down by tubes that they connect with so the whole system is like a, a jigsaw puzzle so there's the bounding interface. So we're using glue a bit similar to what we've seen in the past year with pole. 
But instead of machining uh, two halves and bounding it at the interface, we came up with like an interface method that is really re reliable and it's mechanically uh, hold in place. So even if our glue gap would fail, uh, we would have something that would keep the bike together. Okay. So this is strong enough to, to ride? Oh, definitely. Uh, uh, like lug bike and glued bike have been around since the uh, forever I remember in, in the 80s uh, road bike company from France was using glue so the main difference again it, I come back to the analogy of saying that things in the industry that were done in the past are not necessarily wrong they were not right for the time because of the technology but as everything is evolving like adhesive has have made like tremendous uh, jump in their strength and reliability and surface preparation. Uh, and from the testing we have done, the true the, the glue gap doesn't fail. What's failing is the aluminium surrounding that glue gap. So it's really strong. And we're using uh, 7,775 series aluminium which is like the strongest one of the strongest aluminium you can buy cool so yeah that enables brands then to get something that they can actually go and properly thrash on the trails and get a feel for but not have to wait months to get molds or jigs put together or get things yep. shipped in from the far east yep so that's the the nice thing about it so it's doesn't need any tooling even our gluing jig our bonding jigs are 3d printed and the final result is quite impressive. Uh, it's lighter than a traditional welded alloy frame. So it rivals with uh, some of the uh, Evius carbon fiber bikes. So we've, we've even made like a frame lighter than like uh, some of the, like in the first phases of the, uh, the technology, because before focusing on prototyping, we really focused on the interface and on the glue selection and did a lot of testing to find the best uh, recipe to do it. And we ended up like producing front triangles that were 150 to 200 grams lighter than the carbon counterparts. Whoa, that's huge. Yeah, that's that's impressive. So our goal is, is not to replace like carbon fiber construction, but it's a way of giving the test riders and the test team or the the... The, the racing team, a product that they can really spend a lot of time on. They could even race the product and, uh, and make sure that the, uh, to get like quick turnaround evolution of a design before freezing the design into like uh, carbon fiber molds. Yeah. Could you ever see it becoming a production technique or are there things about it that mean it's, it's very much... Uh, kind of just appropriate for prototypes we've looked at it for uh, like a small production run so there's a way to to reduce the cost but the goal for us is really to create like a, like a prototyping technique so and by no mean uh, we want to you know have uh, like a company using that technique for mass produ production 
Yeah. But for small production lot, like uh, I would say 25 and less, it could really be considered. Yeah, interesting stuff. Cool. Well, we're we're getting uh, we're getting close to the end of our time. We've got our four final questions, but before we hit those, is uh, one more I'd like to ask you specifically, and and that's what advice you'd give to people who want to get into the bike industry and specifically into the the more technical side of things. Yeah. So um, there's no real like uh, other ways than be really passionate about bicycles. Uh, invest your personal time to understand what you know uh, what are the latest product where are they made and also be independent from the marketing uh, material that is given to you by the big brands so this marketing material is always kind of a, a naming convention on top of existing technology so dig mm-hmm. down a little bit more to find out the right terms and uh, understand really what lies behind a frame design from a big company. Uh, and then, like, I guess, uh, like, learn, like, either industrial design, mechanical engineering, and work at bike shop and understand, you know, what people are striving for and what are the needs for the market and eventually apply uh, on a bike position and you'll, you'll make your way into the bike industry. Yeah, and it's a, it's a small, friendly world, I guess. So it's once you've got your foot in the door, then it's uh, it's easier to get to know people. But that first step can be yeah. quite challenging and quite daunting for people, I suppose. Yeah, it's a closed industry, so it's hard to get in. But once you're in, uh, you can move freely from one company to the other. Yeah. And the passion really, that really says a lot, I think, doesn't it? It, uh, It's what gets people noticed. Yeah. We often hear the same comments, you know, if uh, you're looking for a big paycheck, uh, you should look at, you know, other industries. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But if you're passionate about what you're doing, there's a way of making a good living uh, out of designing products in the bike industry. Good stuff. All right. Well, let's hit up our, our standard four questions. And the first one of those is if our listeners had 150 pounds, which is about 260 Canadian dollars at the moment, I think, to improve their performance on a bike, what would you recommend they go and spend it on? For me, it's um, probably the dropper post. Um, I know these days most of the bikes will come with one. Um, but even if you're... Um, you know, a cross-country racer, uh, I would get one dropper post. And for people that have a dropper post on your on their bike, uh, my recommendation would be to use it twice as much as they are using it now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so get getting it out of the way, like even if you're maybe on not the most aggressive of trails, just getting that that saddle slammed down. Yep, yep, and. Uh, we're uh, working on the on the electronic post uh, right now, and it makes such a change uh, on how often you will use it, because we're okay. taking away the interface and the lever throw and the force you need to apply to the dropper lever. So um, this is what I call like meaningful electronics on bikes. So it's literally just a tap of a button. And would the would the post ever 
drop itself without having your own weight on it? Or is it always, do you think it's, it's the right solution that you have to do that under body, under body weight? Yeah, we're thinking about that. Like it's, uh, it's always counterintuitive, I think, to push down the seat post with your weight, but mm -hmm. getting the posts uh, down is, you know, we need energy to yeah. do that and we need to store energy in the bike. Uh, that's definitely solution that we're looking on right now, and that could really change the way we ride our bike if you wouldn't have to drop your saddle with your own weight. Yeah, would it, do you think it would ever go as far as sensing when it should be dropping and doing it itself, so you wouldn't even have to press a button? Uh, yeah, that... there's a like Shimano has filed a lot of patent uh, regarding algorithms that sense when the bike is doing uh, like uh, like uh, going down a hill and try to predict whether the, the saddle should be up or down or okay. somewhere in between. And uh, I think we'll, we'll see that coming. I wonder, like it's really hard to uh, predict that, I think. Uh, and I personally think that it would take away of our riding experience i'm i'm a fan of making our life easier but still have control over uh, over our dropper post yeah i think i'd be a bit freaked out by a dropper post that was making its own mind up about things to be fair <laughs> you, you wouldn't want it to get it wrong would you yep but i i could see uh, making sense in a cross-country race where all your energy is quite important and mm -hmm. you are in close loop and you could teach your dropper post uh your specific need for a course while doing uh, like uh, reconnaissance of the, yeah. the trail and yeah. having repeat the same sequence for uh, the whole race. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense for sure. Definitely. Okay, interesting. Second question, if you could wind back the clock and sit down with yourself age 16, what advice would you give him? I think I'm quite happy with how I did things. Uh, maybe the the thing I regret the most was uh, not riding my bike enough in the past. Uh, I was working long hours at the bike shop, but I, I was really passionate about bikes. And it this is what got me to the point I'm right now. So I don't regret it at all. Fair enough. All right. Third question, if you could have a coaching session from anybody, who would it be and what would you want to learn from them? I think I, I will be really old school compared to the other answers some of your guests <laughs> have given. But for me, I would really want to be uh, spend time with John Tomac. Uh, okay. He was my idol when I was a kid, when I started uh, racing mountain bike. And what really impressed me is how he pushed the sport so far in his riding technique. And he was like so beautiful to watch, like the way he would ride a bike. And uh, I want to, I would want to spend time with him uh, for sure. Like, but yeah. probably my younger self would want to spend time with him. Yeah. I'd join that one. One of the most stylish riders from that era for sure. If not the most stylish. Yeah. And I remember the era where he was riding drop bars yeah. uh, because he was also on the 7-Eleven road team. And that was one of the conditions his coach 
as imposed to him was you need to race with the same position as your road bike. I didn't and, realize that's why he rode drop bars. Yeah. And if I look right now, I'm I'm a big fan of gravel bikes and I'm doing like the most extreme part of gravel bikes where I I, I ride the like uh, almost mountain bike trails, like the mm-hmm. easier one. And and for me, it's kind of uh, like always this vision of him riding the drop bars keeps popping in my mind. <laughs> you need a Tioga disc drive on the back as well then. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's true. <laughs> <laughs> That'd really finish off the look. I'll try and find a picture of that for people that aren't, aren't familiar with John Tomac. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Things have gone a long way. Yeah, All right, I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting old. That's why. Oh yeah, same. Join the club. It's all good though. As long as you're riding bikes, it doesn't matter, does it? Mm, yeah. All right, last one. What do you do every day that you feel benefits you? Uh, riding my bike uh, doesn't need to be for long. As soon as I skipping this routine. I feel not myself, so making up time to go outside and ride. So I ride all year long outside. I'm I hate riding inside. So in the winter here we have a harsh winter and I'm riding my fat bike and riding every day is what keeps my balance. Okay. Yeah, fair play. You get out every day, that's impressive. Uh no, that's my wish. But uh okay. I would say during COVID, uh, with I had more time on my hands, and yeah. I did some amazing riding. Uh, I've done a lot of exploration on my gravel bike during spring period, and uh, the lockdown didn't feel like felt really pleasant. Uh, some people didn't enjoy it. But uh, for me, it was a really enjoyable time because I had to spend a lot of time on my bike in remote areas and there were not a lot of cars on the road and it was a pretty good time. Very nice. Cool. Well, that's a good place to end it. But if people want to find out a little bit more about Faction Bike Studio, where's the best place for them to look? Uh, our website. So it's www.factionbikestudio.com. Or we have an Instagram page and a Facebook page that is quite easy to find uh, with Faction Bike Studio. You will find us. So we're trying to put as much meaningful uh, information as possible without uh, disclosing any uh, potential secret uh, for our customers. Yeah, that's a tricky balance. But uh, yeah, good stuff. I'll put some links in the show notes to the website and to the Instagram and the Facebook. So if people want to find those, then they can head to the show notes and click on them. Thank you. Cool. Well, it's been super interesting chatting, Eric, and uh, and finding out more about you and hearing your thoughts on on where we're at in the bike industry and, and where the future's heading. So yeah, thanks a lot for your time, man. Super interesting. Thank you for having me. And if you want to ever discuss a new or another subject, uh, I'm free for you. Definitely. Thanks, man. Take care. All right. Thanks, Chris. All right. That's it for this episode with Eric. I hope you've enjoyed listening. 
A massive thanks to Crank Brothers and Hunt Bike Wheels for supporting this episode of the podcast. If you want a chance to win your choice of Crank Brothers clipping pedals and an M20 multi-tool to install them with, then just head to downtimepodcast.com forward slash Crank Brothers now, and that'll take you to the Crank Brothers entry form. You've got until the end of October to enter. Also, if you want to check out the entire Crank Brothers range, head to crankbrothers.com. If you're after some new wheels, then as a downtime listener, Hunt Bike Wheels are kindly offering you a free Hunt accessory pack worth over £40 with each order until the 15th of November. All you need to do is to use the code DOWNTIME, all in lowercase, over at huntbikewheels.com. All the links you need are in the show notes for this episode over on downtimepodcast.com. If you fancy representing the show, then you can grab yourself a t-shirt or one of our brand new sweatshirts or hoodies by heading over to downtimepodcast.com forward slash shop. Please keep on telling your riding friends about the podcast. Keep sharing the episodes on your social media and being awesome supporters of the show. It really means a lot to me and it is the reason why the podcast is still going. Also, if you shared last week's episode about racism in mountain biking with Phil and Elliot, thank you so much. The reaction has been incredible and we've had amazing feedback. It's got some brands thinking differently who've been in touch as well. So yeah, massive thank you to everyone who shared that and helped spread the word. All right, we've got another awesome episode coming up soon, but until then, get out and ride. <laughs>